the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, maybe he was just talking to her about the weather. Talking about the weather seems to be the the go-to excuse for Joe Biden and why he might have dropped in on some business meetings between his son Hunter and foreign companies and or governments. And the media were happy to slurp it all up yesterday and either ignore or downplay the testimony from Devin Archer, Hunter Biden's business partner. It was really embarrassing listening to supposed legitimate journalists uh, buying that story and declaring the scandal a nothing burger. It was all over the um, the media last night and the, I guess today, too. So, so now comes the audio recording of Ashley Biden. She's Joe's daughter, and Project Veritas got a hold of her diary several months ago. On the recording, this recently discovered recording, she confirms that the diary that was found in a house she had lived in was hers. And in it she wrote that she has been dealing with sexual and drug addictions, and she wrote that showering with her dad may have been the cause, or at least one of the causes, of her sexual issues. Here's what she wrote. This is a quote from the diary. I was so afraid of him coming in the shower with me that I've waited until late at night to take a shower, unquote. So, What do you think Joe or somebody in his administration, maybe his media relations intern, Karine Jean-Pierre, will be asked to comment on this? And who will be the media person with the guts to ask it? Of course, it would be a waste of time to ask because uh, Karine would just say it's a family issue and she's not going to comment on it. And Joe's smart enough to ignore it and not answer any questions about it. But that doesn't mean it's not a gigantic story. There should be lots of panel discussions about this, especially when we've been hearing more and more the last couple of days about how important family is to the big guy and what a great dad he is based on the way he has stood by Hunter. Of course, all of that is a steaming hot pile of horse manure, but what do you expect? The non-Fox and non-Newsmax cable news outlets either ignore the Devin Archie testimony, Archer, I should say, Uh, which NBC did, or used it as an opportunity to say that there is no there there, and it's time for Republicans to what? Move on, of course. Well, when we come back, we're going to have our media ethics expert, Professor Jeffrey McCall here, go over how much the uh, media beclowned themselves on this story again and what we should expect from them on Showers with Ashley. And in our second half hour, we're going to have Kenny Zhu. He's written a book called School of Woke, how critical race theory infiltrated American schools, and why we must reclaim them. Stick around. Well, the legacy media sure are stubborn. They just aren't going to buy into any criticism of Joe Biden and his dealings with his son Hunter. And after what happened yesterday and last night with the uh, Devin Archer story, you wonder if it's going to take a finding, you know, maybe they find a $5 million check from somebody at Burisma in Joe's brown pants before they treat it as a serious story. 
Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University. He joins us now. Jeff, thanks for coming on again. You're welcome. Great to be with you, John. So (laughs) we have you on here every couple of weeks, um, and um, every time you're here, I ask, because this is an ongoing thing here, I ask what it's going to take for the media to start taking this, uh, you know, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden story seriously. I really thought this was the time. I thought this was it, uh, Jeff, that they couldn't ignore or apologize for this one, but they did. What do you make of it? Well, it's kind of typical, and and it's very disappointing on one level because we know that the news media is supposed to be providing some sort of information flow for a democracy. And you would think that with a straight face, they could report all that information that is coming out and let people make their own decisions about what to make of it. But the problem is the news media still sees themselves as activists. They see themselves as crusaders. And they certainly uh, do not want to do anything that's going to make it harder for the Biden administration to be successful and by now, of course, we're in a presidential campaign run-up, at least for the primaries. And they're concerned that anything that they would do that might make the Bidens look bad would necessarily then help the Republicans. And mostly, of course, they're concerned that it might help Trump. So I don't think we're going to get straight-faced reporting. And, you know, the bottom line here is when people show up in front of congressional hearings, whether those hearings are being run by a Republican majority committee or not, it's still news. And that doesn't mean that we have to take everything that is said in a committee at face value, but at least needs to be reported. And there could be some follow-up scrutiny or investigative reporting or enterprise analysis or something. But the news media is totally hesitant to do that. And if you watch the establishment media or read the establishment newspapers, you'd have very little sense that the Republican House committees are even going down this path of investigating the Biden's nefarious business dealings. And so your average American walking down the street probably doesn't even know that the Bidens have these allegations against them or that there have been whistleblowers in there or Hunter Biden's business associates in there ratting him out. They just don't even know because if you watch Good Morning America, George Stephanopoulos is not going to tell you about it. No, and NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt last night, did not mention it. Took a couple of uh, minutes, though, to do a nice story on, excuse me, Megan Rapinoe of the uh, U.S. women's soccer team. So they were able to work that in. Which is further evidence that they're pushing agendas uh, rather than news, because, I mean, when you get right down to it, there are plenty of good women soccer players, and Megan Rapinoe's kind of toward the end of her career and kind of in almost in the so what department. Yep. But they still want to celebrate that culture. They want to celebrate her as some sort of countercultural figure. Uh, and, you know, if you, I feel bad for the other women on the soccer team because you wouldn't even know they exist. Right. <laughs> uh, because they, they could play all the great soccer they want or score goals or whatever, but it's still Megan's team. She's the face of that team, and that's because the media have created it that way. And getting back to the Biden thing, you know, the media ran cover for Biden during the 2020 campaign. They feel compelled to do it again. Uh, And you might be interested that the latest column I wrote for The Hill hit their website uh, late last week. And it was focused on the fact that the news media has done a very poor job of covering Biden's frailties that they have done virtually no reporting on the fact that Joe Biden 
uh, has trouble physically, that he has trouble uh, expressing himself in press statements, that he's not doing interviews. And so, in a sense, they're covering for him even now as he's trying to gear up for the 2024 campaign because the journalistic community will not report on whether he is physically and mentally capable to do the job for which he was elected. And by the way, I want to point out the column I wrote, I tried to do in a nonpartisan way because Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate minority leader, also had a health issue last week on full view. And and interestingly, the establishment media provided more coverage of Mitch McConnell's health issue uh, on the one day he had it than they've had in the last six months for Joe Biden's many visible health problems or frailties. And so I think this is worth us pondering, too, because my sense is the physical and mental health of candidates must be important. And we talked about this last year when John Fetterman was running for Senate. Yep. The news media covered for him and didn't make it clear what his limitations were. And when you get right down to it, if Joe Biden were applying to be a second grade teacher or a forklift operator or a clerk at a convenience store, would he have the physical and mental capabilities to do any of those jobs? And my guess is the principal at an elementary school would not hire him to teach a second grade class and the clerk or, or the manager or owner of a convenience store would say, Joe, you're just not physically up to snuff to be able to stand and run our cash register here for the next four or five hours. And so I think if you've got the job of president of the United States, we should certainly be determining whether there is a physical and mental capability there. And and one last thing in terms of the news media covering for Biden. I, I know, you know, many of your listeners probably follow Major League Baseball. Sure. You know, when you get right down to it, an average American knows more about the health of a Major League Baseball player than they do our leading politicians. And that would include Biden and Dianne Feinstein and Mitch McConnell and those people, because if a baseball player gets injured, they put it on the website of the team to indicate what the nature of his injury is and when he's expected to be back and what kind of treatment he's getting to make him better. And I'm just thinking, if we know what the condition is, of the second baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates, we for, should for sure know what the health condition would be of the people who are running for president or Senate. Yeah, and uh, uh, kind, of, kind of an aside here, but it seems to me that if you see a person who's 81 years old or whatever McConnell is, and you see him have that episode, it's time to tell him, uh, tell Mitch that, hey, Mitch, you know, um, maybe it's time for you to go home. It's 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 you know unfair and maybe cruel, but you can't we can't be doing this. And you, you'd think that the media would be all over it. I I I know I saw it in some places. You know I've seen columns from people saying, okay, you know the Babylon Bee's had a lot of fun with it, but I've seen I've seen columns where people have said, hey, come on, it's at some point it, it it gets pretty obvious you can't do the job. Go home, and they should be all over this, shouldn't they? Yeah, the media should be covering this as a news story. And I get get that some news organizations might be thinking, hey, if we report about somebody's, you know, frailty, it comes off as ageism. And and just as you know, I'm a senior citizen myself. (laughs) So I don't think this is ageism. This is reporting what is right in front of us and what is factual in terms of whether a person can do the job. And I think you can do that kind of reporting with some sort of decency and civility. 
And I don't think we need to go out and say, oh, look at how old this person, they fell over or something like that. But I think you could say, you know, this is a matter of whether they're capable of doing the job. And I think that should be the standard for, for anybody we're hiring to do well, a job. And then, like I said, whether that's an elementary school teacher or certainly president of the United States. Well, if Mike on the other side of the glass here saw me in the middle of a sentence when I'm talking to you and I just went silent and was staring off into space uh, and, and, you know, somebody came by and saw me, they'd say, ah, it looks like it's time to pack it in. You know, you're, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, you're, 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 you're up there in years and it's not a mean thing. It's just, it happens to everybody. It's, uh, it shouldn't be, it's, but the media should be calling them out on it and, and without being afraid of being called mean. You know, it's That's a, right. you're not mean. That's your job. It's reporting what is factual. And, and, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, the media still likes to run cover for Biden. And you probably saw this uh, in July. Uh, the CNN reporter Fareed Zakaria did a sit down interview with Joe Biden, which is rare in itself. Right. Biden doesn't do very many interviews, but it was a softball interview. So I'm sure the Biden handlers figured, hey, this will be OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fareed Zakaria is not going to take him on. But Zakaria even brought up about Biden's age. And, you know, a couple of times when Biden has been asked about his age, he just says, well, watch me. Well, Zakaria said, uh, and this is a quote, I think a lot of people do watch you and they're impressed. (laughs) What do you mean they're impressed? Maybe negatively, but they're they're not impressed to think, oh, this guy's right on top of his game. Uh, And Zakaria is running this kind of propaganda campaign on CNN uh, in full view of the nation, and I'm just thinking, you know, if if you're saying, hey, they're impressed when they watch you, I'm thinking, he is really off the off the edge here, and it just shows the 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 length and the determination to which the establishment media will go to create a mirage of a president who is fully capable in control when there are so many evidences uh, on videotape and otherwise. That there are not. And it's also irrelevant because if Joe Biden were 100 years old, you know, he turned 100 today, it'd be very impressive if he was if he were able to get up to the podium without, you know, face planning on the on the podium or pooping his pants. You know, it, that would be impressive. But it's that's not the point. You know, we're not it's not a, a test to see how good, how, how well you're doing at the age of 80. It's whether or not you can. You look like you're handling the job no matter how old you are. That's right. And again, uh, the age is not the key factor here. The, the, the yeah. capability Performance. is the key factor. Yeah. And the, the, that's one of the points I made in my column in The Hill last week, was that there are plenty of people who are well into their 80s who are leaving active and vibrant lives and accomplishing a lot and still working full time and all that sort of thing. So it's not ageism. The question is, at his particular age and with his particular limitations, can he do what he's supposed to be doing? And the answer is probably not. And, and you may know that uh, there's a Fox News commentator named Joe Concha. Oh, yeah. And uh, Joe Concha frequently puts on his Twitter feed a picture of uh, Joe Biden's official White House schedule for the day. And, and it's, it's just shocking how many days the White House schedule for Joe Biden is that he gets a, a, a daily presidential briefing, and that's it. Or maybe he has lunch with the vice president. He play, but plays bingo. He goes and plays bingo for, for a couple hours. But, but there are lots of days where the president has nothing on his schedule. Yeah. And we also know that as a president, 
uh, in his first term, he has spent way more time, quote unquote, on vacation yeah, yeah. Uh, than than other presidents, which should well raise the question, uh, why does he need so much time off? Does he not have the the health and the stamina to be able to do a job? Because he was hired to do a job. And, uh, and, and if the job's getting done, fine, but they need to at least tell us that he is. But there, there's very little evidence to show that he's really in charge, which raises another question for an enterprising journalist. If I were a White House correspondent, I would want to be doing stories about, okay, if we're concerned that Biden is not up to snuff and he doesn't have the stamina and he's not really in charge, who is making the decisions when Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, comes out and says, well, the president has decided blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hey, wait a second. How do we know he really decided that? as opposed to having it be Jill or the mm-hmm. chief of staff yeah. uh, or Kamala Harris or anybody else. And if he really is not doing the de- making the decisions and doing the job, that's a story that I think the American public needs to know. Hey, I, I got a couple minutes, about three minutes left here. Um, do you think any, I don't know if you saw the story here about, there's an audio uh, uh, recording out um, of, of Ashley Biden confirming that the diary that was found in the house where she lived for a while is hers. Um, at the, at Project Veritas uh, has said that, you know, they have a, an audio of her confirming it about her taking showers with her dad and blaming that possibly on her sexual problems. What do you think the chances are of the these people that we've just been talking about in the media touching the Ashley, the showering with Ashley story? <laughs> Well, if if they're not going to touch the Hunter Biden laptop yeah. or the uh, whistleblowers in front of congressional committees testifying under oath, they're for sure not going to go down that path. Uh, but, you know, it is kind of weird to think that if there were enterprising reporters out there, they would not only pursue that issue, but they would go, I think, further uh, to look at the, the, the terror read ac- accusations from before yep. Yep. Uh, and also just to look at the various other kind of anecdotes, even in in plain sight. I mean, I hate to say this, but that was a pretty weird a couple of weeks ago when Joe Biden was in Finland Ooh. and and nibbling on the shoulder yeah. of a small girl in her mother's arms. I'm thinking this is not the behavior of of a Wait. of a stable, rational person. Uh, but again, if you watch the NBC nightly news or a program like that. You would have never known. Yeah, but that Jeff, the there. That the, that the president a, of the United States was nibbling on a small right. girl's shoulder. Oh man, this is scary. I have a minute left. Um, that the, the problem is that part of the narrative that they're pushing even more in the last few days with the stuff with Hunter is that Joe is such a great father and a loving husband and a and a family man, and they're 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 pushing that hard the last couple of days to show that as a reason why he was showing up in those business meetings. This uh, showering with his daughter doesn't fit too well in with that, does it? No. And, you know, they've created this myth for years, even going back to when Biden was in the Senate uh, and as vice president, that he's just a great old grandpa figure who hangs around and smiles a lot. Uh, And so that's been a myth for a long time. And again, you know, we're not trying to tear the guy down, but I think just report on the reality and tell us what's going on. And I think this uh, this was startling uh, last month when the New York Times had a report 
that a lot of staffers are hesitant to even be in the same room with Biden anymore <laughs> because he now goes off on angry outbursts and cussing them out. And I'm thinking that's maybe more the real Biden that people should be finding out about rather than that he's such a heck of a nice guy who just likes to have ice cream and go to the beach. Yeah, we're not going to get it from the media, but, uh, you know, we'll keep we'll keep our eye on it. And we thank you for helping us do that, Jeff, as always. You're welcome. Okay, that's Jeff McCall, professor of communications, DePaul University. Well, we're getting closer and closer to the first day of school, and all over the country there are debates about how and and what kids should be taught. The big issue is critical race theory. How widespread is it and who's pushing it? Kenny Hsu has written a book called School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must Reclaim Them, and he joins us now. Kenny, thanks for coming on the show again. Appreciate it. Uh, Glad to be on. Thank you again. So um, infiltrated uh, suggests that it uh, was or or has uh, been a long process and it's been done secretly or at least quietly. Well, you can't argue with that because America has been asleep at the wheel for the past 40 years. Um, Look at how many people we've let into the school boards, for example, with no accountability. Uh, These days, most school board appointments people are appointed. They're not elected because there's no challenger. And so, of course, the woke are going to appoint their woke friends. And so School of Woke shows that this has led to a school board complex that serves the adult interests, the activist interests over the interests of children. Yeah, And and so how widespread is that that you just mentioned there about school boards? Because I'll bet if you took a survey, I don't even I think it would be more than nine out of 10 people would say that they don't know who their school board, who's on their school board, and couldn't tell you when the election was and who ran or anything about it. Right, exactly. That's, that's the point. These are low turnout elections because people think that, oh, well, we trust the professionals, right? The, the, the statement goes, well, we trust the professionals to take care of our kids. We trust the people who run for school board are actually doing things in the best interest of my child. But as School of Woke shows and the new movement against this whole thing shows, the school board members are not necessarily for the interest of the child. Often they're for the interest of the activist, bureaucrat, and politician class over the child. Was this something uh, that happened gradually, um, just over time, or and even if it was gradual, was it planned? In other words, did the people who are showing up on school boards, did they see this opening and say, this is the way we're going to do it. This is how we attack this, and and it was not an accident? So my book gives historical context to the rise of critical race theory in schools. I would say there are two flashpoints. One is the 70s, um, when Marxism, Leninism, entered into education schools for the first time, guided by the number one best-selling work of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which stressed that the best way to teach kids is to remind them of their position in society, which, of course, is the oppressed position. Uh, that led to the oppression oppressive oppressor dynamics. The second time when critical race theory really gained a foothold in the system is actually during the tenure of Barack Obama. And uh, what I mean by that is Obama initiated a narrative in our American society that galvanized the critical race theory interest and his appointments, including um, Linda Darling Hammond as the head of the NEA, 
um, really galvanized the critical race theory industrial complex under the guise of allowing diversity into our classrooms. So Obama, of course, he was the diversity president. Many people voted for him because of diversity, and he used that to punch in a deeply, deep-rooted ideology into our system. And how widespread is it now, Kenny, and how, how much effect have, uh, have the attempts to stop it or, or root it out? How much, how much effect have they had? It's the effect of critical race theory in our system has led to learning loss. It has led to victimhood in children. Um, and one case that I talk about, I talk about how the critical race theory consciousness basically instills a sense of I am discriminated against in life in children, leading to an over 15% decrease in black children's saying that they have the ability to control their life circumstances. That's according to a social science survey by Eric Kaufman, Birkbeck professor of economics. Um, and, you know, in terms of ways to stop this, uh, the movement is nascent. But awareness of critical race theory in the schools has only come about over the past two or three years. Critical race theorists have a 50-year uh, lead on us. But we can close the gap, as they argue in the book. We're talking to Kenny Shu, and the book is um, School of Woke, how critical race theory infiltrated American schools and why we must reclaim them. Uh, you said that the movement is nascent, but has it has it been around long enough that the uh, that the impact is obvious? Uh, maybe not to the average person, but to anyone who looks into it the way you have. Well, I'll tell you what I think. The, when I say the movement, the movement finally is has the right enemy to attack. You know, for a while. I think Republicans and conservatives were focused on attacking teachers unions, which are a huge part of the problem, uh, but also teachers themselves, like cutting pay of teachers. I don't support that. I don't think that that's the problem. Uh, also, school choice. Um, I do support school choice, but I also need people to understand that 90% of the kids are still in the public school system. So um, really, finally, conservatives have started getting it right, which is to attack the curricula itself. The, uh, the, the actual damaging things that they say about American history, the false things that they say about America, including that we're a systematically racist country, you know, the queer sexualization of children, uh, those kinds of things are the things that we should be attacking because they put the moral defense upon the, the woke activists, and they can't do that. Well, Ron DeSantis uh, seems to have attacked that in Florida, and now Kamala Harris is running all over Florida telling people that Ron DeSantis uh, is, uh, is, is okay with teaching kids that there were some good things about slavery. That uh, they, 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 uh, is that a defensive move on the part of the school boards and uh, with the help of uh, the Biden administration? Yeah, I would say that this is an extremely weak attack from the vice president. Um, a weak counterattack, basically. I think she was attempting to try to put the moral blame on Ron DeSantis, but if you actually look at the Florida history curriculum, it says that slavery was, you know, an institution to be reviled. Many people reviled it. It betrayed human rights. And then it also says that some slaves learned skills like blacksmithing and uh, mining and those kinds of things, which they did, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's fact. So her going after facts is complete, you know, is not exactly the best counterattack to what we've been doing, which is actually go against their lies and narratives about history. What's been the role of big tech in all this? So I wrote an op-ed for the New York Post, 
which you can look up Penny Shoe, how big tech um, something. And basically, it, I talk about Merrick Garland and uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's son-in-law, who is the founder of a tech company that's financed by Mark Zuckerberg, who has a big interest in the school system for some reason. And this guy can't, literally can't keep his hands off of schools. He just loves data about children. Um, and so this guy, Zan Tanner, who is Merrick Garland's son-in-law, made a company called Panorama Education that is now in over 100 school districts, hundreds of school districts, asking students ridiculous questions like, are you transgender and have you ever brought a gun to school? And, of course, traumatizing these nine-year-old kids all in the name of solving racism. That was his pitch to the uh, woke school boards, and they bought it because of his political influence. So big tech has an interest in collecting the data of children, has an interest in getting the kids hooked on technology from an early age, has an interest in the education system, which is becoming very bloated and very well-funded, overfunded, in my opinion. And um, I think that, that's, that that is the interest of big tech in wokeism. How aware... It's a, uh, it's a lubricator, a lubricator, yeah. lubricant. Yeah, yeah. How, how aware are parents of this, um, this search for data, and how aware are they of why that data would be important to the, to the people who are think, trying to get it? I think parents are pretty aware now that schools are collecting data about their children, but they haven't yet traced um, why it's important. And my book, School of Woke, lays out uh, what the schools actually do with your child's data. Uh, they will send the data to, um, you know, people who pose as health counselors, including transgender health counselors, who, you know, will come into the school system and try to tell your kid it's okay to be queer and those kinds of things. Um, they will send your data to, you know, health centers like UNC Health or Duke Health. I live in North Carolina. That's why I'm making those things where, you know, they will try, you know, they they will sometimes – these health clinics will advocate using this data for certain drugs to be used on kids and those kinds of things. And there's all kinds of ways that schools use your kids' data without your consent. We're talking to Kenny Shu. The book is uh, School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and Why We Must uh, Reclaim Them. Um, I think I, was, I, I read in your piece at the Post, I think is where I read it, that these kids are first introduced to this stuff they're separating five-year-olds by race? Yeah, you know, and there's a teacher in New York City who I, you know, shadowed, and, you know, she talks about this one diversity consultant who comes into her classroom in front of her six-year-old kids, and the diversity consultant puts on an exercise where, you know, there's like these cartoonish kids on a bus, and one is darker and one is lighter, and she asks the kids, what's the difference between these kids class and like three people raise their hand. And one of them's like, one of them has a yellow hat. Another <laughs> one was like, one of them was wearing shoes and she was getting angry. And then finally one kid finally says, one of the kid is darker. And she was like, yes, Muhammad, that kid is dark and he's oppressed because he is dark. Oh, and gosh, these are I five mean, year olds. Think about it. The kids don't even, the kids don't even know race and these teachers are already trying to put it on them. To, uh, to what end though? I mean, to uh, what end? Yeah, I, I, yeah. The individual teacher, why is this so important to them? Because they think they're doing Ibram X. Kendi's vision of social justice. 
Um, that's why, you know, when he toured around, he said, you have to be racist in order to combat racism. You have to see color in order to combat racism. To these teachers, indoct- fully indoctrinated in the CRT ideology, you shouldn't be colorblind. Being colorblind is a bad thing. It's like the equivalent of white supremacy. You need to teach kids to recognize race so that you can see their true status as an oppressed human being. Now, as you know, or not as you know, as I argue, uh, black kids are not oppressed human beings. And we shouldn't be looking at them as oppressed human beings because once we start doing that, we start patronizing them, we start lowering standards for them, and actually we stop caring about them. Because to be honest, we care more about each other as Americans and we view each other as equals, not as oppressed versus oppressor. Is Is there some soft bigotry of low expectations involved here? Indeed, I wrote I read a whole chapter about what they do with math. I mean, we talked about history here, now I want to talk about math. Mm-hmm. Uh, the critical race theory paradigm is that math and objective truth and objectivity is a category and artifact of white supremacy. <laughs> um, so, you know, because merit, the whole idea of merit is a white supremacist concept made for Europeans to justify their superiority over blacks. Mm-hmm. So in these schools these days, They've been getting rid of gifted and talented math programs, which infuriates a lot of Asian American parents, right? Because they're the ones that are pushing these kids to do math, and they're infuriated when they're just taking away the advanced math classes. And so as a result, we're going to produce less scientists and less engineers because some social justice advocate decides that math is white supremacist. We're talking to Kenny Hsu, and the book is School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools and why we must reclaim them. Before we run out of time here, i got about two and a half minutes, uh, I want to ask you how we reclaim them. Um, but uh, what's the difference between the stated goal of all this or the implied goal and the actual goal? Their stated goal is to eliminate racism and to help black children. Mm-hmm. Their, their execution of it is hurting black children uh, by... Uh, positioning them as the oppressed class and by uh, making teachers, uh, by lowering standards for them, especially in math, as you see, and then teaching them a history, a false history, that blacks are the perpetual victims of a perpetually racist American society. When you combine the lowered standards and the victimization complex and all of the funding that we generously give to the school system is sucked into DEI administrators and bureaucrats. You're not helping black children. You're hurting black children. That is why the racial achievement gap continues to persist in our country, uh, even after we spent three times as much money trying to fight it as we had in 1980. And how do we fix it uh, other than by creating real school choice? I, I talk about the movement for standards. Uh, Basically, what Mississippi did in third grade is that they asked, they, you're held, you're automatically held back if you do not pass a mandatory third grade reading exam. Uh, And I, what that did actually was it galvanized all the teachers and principals in in the Mississippi schools to rate, to reach the bar, to get to the bar, because it basically said every kid can do it. And guess what? Mississippi is now number one in the nation for kids in poverty and their math and reading achievement. Number one in the nation, the state of Mississippi. Think about that. Well, I'm old, uh, Kenny, but I went to school with lots of kids who were, as they used to call it back then, held back. 
And I, I had kids in my, multiple kids in my classes who were a year older than I was because they were, they were in third or fourth grade for the second time. And they, and they stopped doing it, uh, I think, a long time ago, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and the reason why is the incentive structure now, you know, in New York City schools is to you have to pass these kids at all costs. Otherwise, you're denied federal funding. So we got the federal government involved in education and it's really resulted in worse outcomes for most kids. Well, Kenny, uh, good luck with the book. It's uh, School of Woke, How Critical Race Theory Infiltrated American Schools, Why We Must Reclaim Them. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you. Okay, we'll be right back. Well, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Uh, we got, uh, not the show, we got about a couple of minutes left in the show. I can take this. I was just thinking about this today. Um, it's uh, Today's August 1st, so it's a good time to be thinking about this. That means we have August, September, October, that's three. We have a little over 15 months left of what's going on right now. Um, I don't know. Is it is it because we have 24-hour cable news now and you can you have access to it? And if you are dumb enough like I am to spend time on Twitter, you're seeing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can't escape it. And then if you're at home watching the, uh, the nighttime shows in, in prime time, you're just bombarded with this stuff. Um, I'm just trying to imagine 15 more months of this, of Donald Trump being indicted, of Donald Trump saying that he's, you know, that he's being persecuted, which I think he is, of Joe Biden trying to say that he's a normal human being and that, you know, that hunters didn't do anything wrong and and then and and I last night as I as I wanted I was anxious to see how different the coverage was of the uh, Archer testimony. So I, I had Jesse Waters on, on Fox at 8 o'clock, but I flipped over to CNN and MSNBC, and they were either not talking about it or they were soft-pedaling it and saying it was a big nothing burger, and boy, those Republicans, they just got to get over it. They're trying and trying. There's just nothing there. They got to leave poor Joe alone. So that was yesterday, and I just mentioned um, at the beginning of the show that, and in case you missed it, there's an audio recording out there now, and I guess it, I think it's Project Veritas that's come up with the recording. I, I may be wrong about that, but the important thing is it's an audio recording, and it has been confirmed. It's, a, and it's an audio recording of Ashley Biden, Joe Biden's daughter, confirming that the diary they found in a home where she used to live is hers. And it's talking about Joe Biden taking showers with his daughter. Now, with all the talk we have going on right, right now in the country about pedophilia, shouldn't that be a pretty big deal tonight on the cable news outlets? I'm sure Fox will mention it, but it won't get any mention anywhere else. And this is going to go on for 15 more months. But you know what? I'll be here talking about it every day. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.